0: Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison, And I'm Karen. And
1: we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast.
0: Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and
1: ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Lena Gluck. Lena is a public librarian and has worked in both public and academic libraries, and they are the founder of the Anti Fascist Library Network. And we are super excited to talk to Lena today. Is there anything you want to add an introduction or anything that you'd like listeners to know about you before we get started? Uh, I guess
2: that um,
1: outside of my
2: library, you know, professional life, I've also um, been an activist and organizer in Boston and um, in Newark, New Jersey. And that has influenced a lot of, you know, how I um, speak about these issues and I can speak more on how, you know, activism and librarianship come together, um, as
0: we go on. Awesome. Thank you. So just to sort of get started, can you tell us a bit about how you got into this field, either librarianship in general, but also this area of interest with anti-fascist organizing and anti-fascist librarianship and how you decided to pursue that kind of, um, work? Absolutely.
2: So initially, I got a job um, as a library assistant out of undergrad, and and that was in Syracuse, and I had never worked in a library before. I had volunteered a little bit in high school, but never worked in a library before, and I had previously done some work with the Syracuse Peace Council, um, which is uh, an activist, you know, a lefty org in Syracuse, and in working in the library, I was struck by the fact that it was so similar to working, you know, with like activist groups, but like we actually had a budget um, and, you know, for programs that didn't have to all come out of pocket. And, you know, I was struck by this idea that I just was on the ground floor of the community and people could walk in and, you know, like articulate what they needed and I could help them with that and they didn't have to pay anything, and then they could leave, and I was like, this is great. This is exactly where I want to be, and so I ended up um, moving to Boston to go to library school at Simmons, and that was in 2016, and, you know, with all of that 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 entails. Very quickly, it's hard to be in Boston for any length of time without being hyper aware of how many fascists there are. There's like fascist rallies all the time in the Boston common and also like any other protest that's happening, fascists will show up to it to harass people. And so, you know, that became a very urgent thing to deal with, you know, in sort of everyday life as I got more involved in organizing there and being able to, you know, I I was quickly motivated to do a lot of research in understanding fascism and fascist movements and, you know, how they've changed over time to be able to do that work of, you know, keeping people safe around that. And so that was all happening, you know, that organizing and that research that was happening simultaneously while I was in library school and learning this sort of very surfacey level of the you know history of librarianship and of course you know I started researching that more in depth and learning you know how white supremacy was by design like in there from the very start and just this history of librarianship that isn't the one that people like to talk about with this you know there's a lot of this rhetoric that it's like you know libraries are inherently you know this like progressive wonderful like thing and If it was proposed today, like it wouldn't, you know, which makes it sound like when it was originally, it was like some sort of radical thing, which it was not, you know, you know, mainly made to like assimilate immigrants and promote white supremacy and keep people of color out of libraries. And it was just awful. And just, oh my God, there's like this um, whole history of white supremacist propagandists selling all these, like, pro-slavery books. Well, not selling, but donating them to libraries um, as children's books. And libraries just all across were like, yeah, you know, we'll just take those in. And it just perpetuated this whole, like, it was a huge thing in children's librarianship that was, like, a very sort of foundational thing as they got this influx of, like, children's books that they were literally all white supremacist propaganda. Um, And, you know, so there's just a whole bunch of terrible things. (laughs) And, um, and so, you know, in learning about that, um, and also dealing with, you know, the realities of actual, like, you know, fascist organizing happening around me at the same time, it sort of brought me to a place where, um, I view librarianship as, you know, a tool that we can use in the fight against fascism. And I also view anti-fascism as a tool we can use to, you know, completely restructure librarianship from the ground up. And so, you know, I think that these two histories can overlap in useful ways or in terrible ways, depending on, you know, how, how it plays out. And so I view my role as trying to push the conversation towards an anti-fascist librarianship at this moment in time.
1: Thank you. So you mentioned a lot of terms and so maybe we can start with some definitions as well such as like what is fascism and like what is anti-fascism and you also mentioned the state as well so maybe we can start with those three.
2: Yeah absolutely so I will preface me talking about the definition of fascism with there isn't just one definition of fascism like if you look into the scholarship on it different people have different definitions and it's not even just a matter of like different places where they draw the line about what counts as fascism it's entirely different frameworks um and so you know in some of those frameworks there's been some folks that will argue that fascism is essentially what happens when all the terrible things that are done during colonialism are like brought home into the main country's own people you know and used on their own people and you know acknowledgement of the horrors of imperialism, and then that being brought back, there are some will draw heavy emphasis on authoritarianism, um, which I don't necessarily agree with as like a definition of fascism. I think authoritarianism is often a feature of fascism, but isn't interchangeable with it um, by any means, um, especially because some of the um, more contemporary fascist strains happening, especially in North America are advocating for a sort of decentralized fascism and there are also like fascist movements, you know, there's eco-fascists, there are very like fundamentalist Christian fascists that tend to focus on gender as much or more than they do on race, you know, and so what I would say when we're talking about defining fascism is we have to understand it as a living ideology um, that responds to material conditions. It is different in different places. You know, there's different strains of fascist movements in the same way where, you know, there's many different movements of any ideology. You know, you think about how many different forms of feminism there are, you know, and there are many different forms of fascism. And one thing that I view um, as a you know, defining factor of fascism is the idea of supremacy, of the idea that on either a biological or, you know, God-given level, you know, there are certain social groups, social identities that are innate and that are superior to others, and that there is always going to be this idea that the deaths of people who are identified as lesser groups you know, their deaths are either going to be inevitable, or actually like a good thing, you know, they're framed in that way, that it's like, either it's just natural, it's the way it is, they're going to end up dying one way or another, or it'll actually benefit us if if they die. And one of the things that's important to note is that white supremacy and white nationalism Aren't necessarily the same things. I used to view them as very interchangeable, but I did a brief internship with Political Research Associates, which is an organization that basically tracks the far right and supremacist groups, and then like uses that intel to help activists, um, and you know, putting it into digestible frameworks. And one of the things that was really important that I learned there is that. It's important to talk about the difference between
0: these two, because the
2: United States is a white supremacist nation. We are founded on white supremacy, and that continues to be um, integral to our very structure. And at the same time, there are um, white nationalist groups, you know, these independent fascist groups that do seek to abolish the United States as it stands, because they want something that is a different version of white supremacy. You know, they're looking for an ethnostate. And those have some interplay where like white nationalists, you know, are getting into the realms of power within the United States. And it's important to note that the line between what is fascism and what is not, isn't necessarily the line between what we can survive and what we can't, you know, it's not necessarily the um, defining moral line because white supremacy is already fatal, like it already, you know, our nation has already committed genocides. And these are ongoing, you know, already atrocities, already crimes against humanity. And so we don't need to assign a fascist label to condemn white supremacy, you know, in the way that it's structured in this country, because, you know, even, you know, we're we're all implicated in this. With that said, also, I view fascism as involving this form of supremacy, right? And what is currently happening, especially due to the pandemic, is we're seeing more and more of a eugenicist logic that is being promoted and I view this as completely fascist because they are arguing that a percentage of the population who are you know disproportionately disabled and racialized are it's either inevitable they're going to die or it's a good thing for the economy Um, and that's what's being argued and to me that's like an you know unequivocally fascist argument and that Form of blatant disregard for human life is something that is, I would consider, an element of both capitalism and fascism, but it being filtered along these very racialized um, and eugenicist lines is a very like fascist practice. So that's kind of a complex answer um, because it's a complex question. And I suppose, and in a way, my rambling over the definition is so I can't really be reduced to a clear soundbite because I really do encourage people to look into scholarship around fascism themselves and figure out how this um, fits within other networks and how it has appeared differently in different points in time and what we're really talking about when we're saying we're opposing fascism. As far as defining anti-fascism, anti-fascism is... Um in its simplest, it is opposing fascism and being willing to do something about that. Anti-fascism, you know, you can make the argument about it beginning in different points, but um, the most common to direct people towards was anti-fascist action, which began in Germany, opposing Nazi Germany, of course, and um, that was primarily, you know, socialists, anarchists, communists trying to come together to stop the rise of Nazism there. And, you know, that um, symbolism is brought forward today in a lot of anti-fascist struggle. And there is sort of a difference in how organizing works when You are resisting fascism that has already taken government control versus fascism that are independent groups trying to build and vie for power. That is something that I think is is useful to talk about or to think over in a tactical perspective, because we're at a really unique moment right now in the United States where, you know, there are fascist actors in government and then there's also fascist groups organizing independently of that that have overlapping but sometimes distinct goals and can take a lot of different forms. And so it's a very multifaceted and complex struggle that's happening as far as defining the state. It's also more complex than it sounds. You know when I talk about the state, I'm I'll phrase it as the interplay of the governance of a settler nation, with the interests of capital. So, I, I guess that's how I would articulate those three. And I think that talking about things from an anti fascist perspective and talking to anti fascists in general, you'll often hear discussion about this three way battle um, that's happening between anti fascists and fascists and the capitalist state. That is a discussion that is relevant to have, because often people who have not familiarized themselves with this sort of complex history and struggle will try to rely on police to prevent fascist groups and, you know, and also, you know, try to, you know, frame the current like white supremacist capitalist nation as somehow something that needs to be protected rather than abolished. It's very important to not do that, you know. (laughs) And the idea of anti-fascist struggle is, you know, opposing white supremacy and all forms of supremacy, no matter where they arise, whether they are independent fascist groups or whether it's a white supremacist government
0: thanks for working your way through all those definitions you're right it's it's much more complex (laughs) than than quickly captured but i think um well we're going to get into some of that more like the role of police and and everything in, in a few minutes so but let's back up a couple of years, to a thread that you wrote in 2018 in response to hashtag NoHateALA. And you wrote about hate groups who have used library spaces for their organizing as like a deliberate tactic, especially in the early 2000s. Can you walk us through some of that history and some of the research that you did into that past pattern?
2: Absolutely. So one of the things that I noticed in that piece of ALA uh, justification for inviting hate groups in was they were citing cases in which libraries had denied use of meeting rooms to white supremacists, and the white supremacists had sued the library and won. Um, and that was their justification. And I was noticing and looking through their citations that it was all the exact same group that this had happened with. And I wanted to, you know, investigate more into that. And I ended up learning that um, this particular neo-Nazi group um, called World Church of the Creator, and is now called the Creativity Movement, this very, like, it's a explicitly neo-Nazi group, um, Southern Poverty Law Center classifies it as neo-Nazi, and at that period of time in the early 2000s, um, they were being led by someone named Matt Hale, and um, he used organizing in libraries as a specific tactic, both for recruiting um, new members to his neo-Nazi group um, and also to terrorize the communities. And um, there were uh, seven libraries total that he was able to do this in um, over the course um, of those two years, from 2000 to 2002. And that started in the Bloomington Public Library in Illinois, um, Wallingford well- Public Library in Connecticut, Schaumburg Township District Library in Illinois, Martin Memorial Library in Pennsylvania, Tab Library in Virginia, Lucius Bailey Memorial Library in Virginia, and Baltimore County in Maryland. And at each of those, the play was essentially you try to reserve a meeting room, often under the guise of a more innocuous sounding program, which then, of course, quickly reveals itself to be white supremacist in nature as the event gets closer. And if the library fights that and basically is like, we're not giving our meeting room for you to organize, then they threaten to sue the library, um, often on grounds of First Amendment violation. And um, if that succeeds, often either the library has to pay some large sum of money, which they probably don't have because libraries are underfunded, or they have to agree to let them hold their meeting there at the library anyway, despite their protest. So in that avenue, the supremacist group, you know, feels that that's a victory because they're validated by the state. And, you know, we're seeing this, you know, very clear, like, You know, the white supremacist state is rewarding the independent like neo-Nazi group. And, you know, and so they're working together. And then, of course, if the library doesn't do anything and allows it to happen, then, you know, that's also they see it as, you know, state approval of what they're doing and a way to further recruit because they're reaching more people. And also, importantly, it's fundamentally a tactic of drawing marginalized people's humanity into the realm of public debate because this is going to make news and it will give them a platform and they will be able to start conversations about whether or not these points are true. They'll have people, you know, be willing to debate them. They'll have people willing to talk about these issues and um, ultimately no marginalized person targeted by these groups is going to feel safe coming in that library and so they're also succeeding in segregation goals and so they accomplish a lot through this tactic sometimes these libraries will find themselves in situations where although it's often framed as you know well everyone is welcome at the library so why aren't you know these people welcome there um and You know, it's such a problematic framing for so many reasons, but one of the reasons in just a plain material way is that these meetings often cause the entire library to have to close down. And sometimes even all the roads like around the library, Um, there was one instance in which police didn't allow anyone else to even park within a mile of the library. Um, And so you're not just prioritizing the speech of these neo-nazis over like an equal number like you're prioritizing their speech over literally everyone else's in the whole city that would have used that library in space and you're holding them up and being like yeah you're right to do this it's more important than literally everyone else's access to this building
1: um an area
2: and um and so you know we have to talk about this in material terms like talk about what we're really saying um and you know, also, a lot of the time, the library response, even when they are aware that this is, you know, even when they were aware that, you know, this was a neo-Nazi group and um, that had a history of doing this to communities, their solution was to bring in more police as this idea of, like, defending the library. And at uh, Wellingford Public Library in Connecticut, state police ended up using chemical weapons um, against Protesters, like 600 protesters had showed up and, you know, police pepper sprayed them. And Martin Memorial Library, there were police and riot gear there, um, a state police helicopter. There was even reports of like snipers and, you know, along the rooftops and um, all this just heavy militarized space. And also um, at the Martin Memorial Library rally with Matt Hale. Uh, you know, this also invited implicitly like other white supremacist groups and white nationalist groups that showed up to like support him. And so there were all these fascists that showed up and then all these police and riot gear. And then this was such a huge conflict and, you know, trauma. It actually made it into Mark Bray's Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook as like one example of you know, anti-fascist struggle um, in American history, because it was like that big, just the, the story about them using the library in this way. When I was looking into it, it struck me that there was one library which refused the group and then were sued, and there was a discussion that happened at their board about trying to revise the policy to, you know, better explain why they shouldn't be allowed to organize there. Um, so that way they couldn't be sued as easily to have, you know, a more concrete policy on the books. But at that point, it was too late, because they were already in the midst of the case. And, you know, they knew it wouldn't look good if they changed their policy while they were being sued um, over it. And it struck me that even though that happened, and it was sort of like this, oh, no, we should have done this before this happened to us. No other libraries tried to change their policy to try to prevent it from happening. and you know, the only reason why Matt Hale stopped doing this and organizing in libraries wasn't due to any resistance from libraries, like any successful organizing. It was because he threatened to assassinate a federal judge and was arrested. And with his leadership out of the way, the neo-Nazi group sort of splintered into two different groups and, you know, sort of faded out of prominence. Something that I argued back in 2018 is that this was a model that we, as librarians, have done nothing to prevent from happening again. You know this is a model that any fascist group could pick up and use anytime and since <laughs> since then, um we have seen that, and um so you know currently, you know before the pandemic, um it was just starting up again with um a different strain of fascism, which is the trans misogynist groups, typically called TERFs, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. But, you know, it's important to note that these groups um, are specifically focused on a form of gender essentialism and, you know, directed towards trying to create a world in which trans women do not exist. And they have started organizing in libraries. they are Key player right now is Megan Murphy, and the organization that often is renting out space in libraries and meeting rooms um, is called WOLF, which stands for Women's Liberation Front. And they have a lot of connections to the Christian right. I mentioned earlier on, like, one of the major fascist strains um, in North America right now is this sort of traditionalist, Christian, fundamentalist form of fascism that has a preoccupation with gender um, almost as much or more so than it does with race. And um, this movement and TERFs have a lot of overlap. They tend to give each other platforms and they work together to pass anti-trans legislation. And there is a very symbiotic relationship going there um, to the point where some have argued that, you know, certain Turk groups are fronts for these right-wing Christian groups. Some scholarship, you know, would disagree with that, you know, in that, you know, it's a voluntary choice that the Turks are making these alliances. But it's important to understand that they work with groups that are far-right Christian fascist groups, groups that have been identified as hate groups with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And, you know, they do this specifically to target trans women and trans people in general. And so there was on January 10th, 2019, um, the Vancouver Public Library was targeted. On October 29th, 2019, the Toronto Public Library was targeted. Um, And February 1st, 2020, the Seattle Public Library was targeted. And um, those, you know, that group was paused in their ability to keep using libraries in this way because of the COVID crisis. <laughs> and not because, again, not because libraries actually did anything to prevent this from happening. There was a controversy more recently in that library journal awarded Seattle Library this word of library of the year, even though they had held this hate group, um, the supremacist group in their library and had protests and completely severed their trust with um, the LGBT community in the area and had gone against their union and their own workers and did all this absolutely heinous stuff to give a platform for this turf group. And they awarded them library of the year. So there's a lot of institutional support um, behind this. And it's also important to talk about, you know, the police involvement. And did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah,
0: I was going to ask a follow-up question about that. I'm really glad you tied it into the current um, turf organizing. It's something like we've done four or five episodes on that, I think, as a podcast. Because it's something, I mean, it's very local here in Vancouver. It's happened at multiple different, um, not only our public library, but two of the universities here. Um, have had really prominent turf speakers. And we've talked to some people in Toronto about the organizing there in response to it. So I think when you're describing this stuff in the early 2000s, it's like, you know, you could lay the two um, sets of events over one another and they're so similar, right? The pattern of booking the library space to grant legitimacy to a group that the library is threatened. If you say no to us, we'll sue you. <laughs> Calling yeah. in the police, all of it. It's like a mirror and it's very... um think it's very telling and it's really interesting to hear you talk about the the actual links between those sets of groups as well they're also in conversation with one another and learning from each other about these tactics in a way that libraries have clearly not done (laughs) to learn how to um, oppose them and when you were describing that scene I forget which town it was in the one mile radius of no cars being allowed to park or anything totally in my head is playing out the images of um, the Toronto library branch when the when Megan Murphy was talking there, there's police all around, kettling protesters. Um, so, yeah, it's very similar. So, yeah. So to like shift into that conversation around the role of police in libraries and in relation to fascist organizing. Right now, there's calls in the library community for libraries to not work with police questioning the role of private security in libraries as well to kind of take us back a step before we get into like how those two things fully intersect. Do you want to talk a little bit broadly about how libraries work with police and private security, like what those relationships look like?
2: Yeah. Um, so it is a very big question. It's going to be another one of those very complex, convoluted answers, but all of our institutions um are interwoven with police. Um, It's it's one of the things that is so difficult about the sort of monster of the prison industrial complex is that it isn't everything. Um, There's so many different paths to incarceration and it's so rooted um, in the control of people of color in this country and especially of black people you can look at the history of policing and, you know, it primarily comes from slave patrols. It comes from, um, you know, different, um, structures of suppressing protesters, um, you know, and labor organizing. These were like the foundational forms of what police evolved from, you know, before police, um, you know, this is how it came into being, um, And I definitely encourage people to look more into those things. And I can I can send over some resources, too, that you could include in the in the podcast description. Um, But it's really important to think over the history of policing and how policing seeks to control the population for the benefit of capitalists and specifically white capitalists and how it seeks to control people of color, um, their movement, their behavior, everything. Um, And that is still exactly the case today. It still functions for the exact same reasons. And we can look at a library where we have a policy where you're not allowed to sleep, right? And you can look at how if a policy, you know, is enforced and you know the person doesn't want to, you know, obey the librarian, then the librarian's next call is usually to either call security or to call police. Usually, both of which are armed, and so you have this power setup where, you know, and we're talking about librarianship, which is over 80% white, um, and you're talking, you know, about A group of, you know, white people who any situation in which they want to flex power, they have access to the use of state violence. That is where librarians are deriving their power from. We're talking about this interplay in the carceral system, and libraries are very bound up in this currently, um, the library where I work at now, there are police stationed literally right when you walk in the front door, are armed police. They're the first people that you see before you even see a library and you see police. It's a very interwoven system right now. There's current conversations happening in the library world about divesting from police, and these are evolving conversations because the level of involvement with police and what that involvement looks like and what, you know, structures are in place that are maintaining those are different on a library by library basis. Even though this issue is um, very systemic and structural, the ways of addressing it often have to do with local politics and, you know, addressing these within communities. You know, there's a lot of conversation in in abolition work in general, what people will say, get rid of police, you know, what will we replace them with? And um, I think a lot of the time people are expecting, like, just one thing to be like, oh, yes, you know, this replaces police, this one thing. And it's like, something that I try to talk to people about is that, you know, police and prisons, that's like one tool. And so you can't just Replace that one tool with some other tool and expect that to work because using one tool for every single thing is never going to give you satisfying results it's never going to address it like we have to actually engage in the complexity of human interaction um, and need and care and actually figure out contextually you know here is an issue you know where people need care and how do we best provide that like what can we do and that's going to look very different there there's this sort of push to you know the, the thing that i think is often applied with a very broad stroke is this idea of like this tool of criminalization and this idea of you know quote unquote the criminal and it doesn't you know It's so broad a brush, it's utterly meaningless, you know, when you're talking about, you know, someone who didn't have their trash can lid completely, you know, um, over their trash. And so they were arrested for littering, even though everything was in the can, the lid just wasn't on the right way. And that's a real example from a documentary I just watched of how a woman ended up in prison. Um, And you're, you know, you're talking about that in the same you know, with the same words as you're talking about, you know, somebody who, you know, murdered someone, and with the same words as somebody who, you know, sold drugs, or the same words as somebody who's engaged in sex work, with the same words of some, you know, and like, it's so many different issues. And of course, you can't solve all of those with the same thing, like some of them don't even need to be solved. And others, like, it's about actually addressing hurt and, care. So it really requires an entire rethinking of how we approach those things. It's not necessarily something that is a one for one, like you switch them out. <laughs> I hope that answers the
1: question somewhat. Yeah, thank you. I feel like this might be, and I think you kind of touched on, on this question a little bit as well, but why why do libraries use security and police? And I, I don't really expect there to be, like, a simple, you know, direct answer to this. But I was wondering if you could maybe, uh, we could slow down a little bit with this question and just kind of think about, like, why, yeah, why do we have such an intense, like, presence in our in our libraries that are supposedly, like, safe havens or, like, places for everyone?
2: Right. I think that historically, you know, we have to also look at the history of libraries as, you know, spaces that began as collections of you know, texts by white men for white men and keeping other people out, basically, protecting their private collections that they were sharing with each other. Look at how that's evolved over time. And you look at the history of racial segregation of libraries and police being used to make sure that Black people could not enter libraries. Um, You know, and you look at that history and you look at contemporary examples of policies that are made to exclude homeless folks um, and addicts and any other criminalized people from library spaces. Um, So many policies have these labels that are just, you know, no unlawful behavior, um, which basically just gives it over to police to decide on any policy they want. Essentially, it's just like a wild card. Um, (laughs) it's like if if police accuse you of unlawful behavior, you can't be in the library, we're not going to specify any of this. And, you know, and so you can sort of see the use of policing in libraries as a form of exclusion, um, as a form of maintaining this sort of, um, you know, this space of white supremacy this space of um, class hierarchy and it can only be maintained through this implicit use of force, um, you know, the threat of physical violence um, and and that's how we're maintaining these spaces. I also think that, you know, it's important to not neglect that libraries do face very real issues of violence in the workplace. There's been instances of library workers being killed, um, you know, being sexually harassed or assaulted, there are reasons why we need to talk about workplace safety. There's the hashtag going around now, like "Protect Library Workers," um, and you know that has to do with the danger that library workers are being put in in asks to reopen, particularly in unsafe ways during the pandemic. You know, so there are genuine costs to worker health that need to be addressed, and those are important. That is not something that can be achieved with police at the same time, you know, and it's important to talk about those things. One thing that I've mentioned on Twitter before um, is, you know, I once worked at a library where we had armed security that were supposedly there to, you know, be a defense for us, the library staff, against uh, men who would sexually harass us, and you know, they're particularly there late in the evening when you were alone on staff after hours. And I ended up being sexually harassed by the guy with the gun who is on security. Um, and so I just, I, I really don't buy into that idea of you know having security or police presence as a way to approach these issues many of the cases of librarians being even killed on the job, often it has to do with domestic violence. Someone from their personal life is showing up at their job um, with a history of violence against them. And, you know, so the interplay in um, sexual and gendered violence and rape culture in general, you know, I really reject this sort of carceral feminist solution of using prisons to try to remove rape culture because prisons are such a huge part of rape culture. You know, you can't, um, you can't deny how big of a role prisons have in perpetuating rape culture when like there's a whole genre of rape jokes that are just about prison rape. And, you know, you can look at the scholarship of Angela Davis, who talks about how even just the routine processing of inmates involves sexual violence these strip searches and cavity searches and, you know, just routine sexual assault that happens against um, incarcerated people every single day. You know, you can talk about prisons as these, you know, locations of abusive control. (laughs) The master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. You know, you can't dismantle rape culture by using a force of it. And so, you know, I think that, you know, a big task right now is to, find ways of building safety in libraries, you know, that honor workers' bodies and minds and are trauma-informed and have a real basis in the material realities that workers face um, and, you know, allow for labor organizing and building that safety outside of police. And that's something that the Anti-Fascist Library Network has been working on for some time. We have um, different channels for different issues and one of them is specifically focused on that task.
0: I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, how people might go about starting these conversations in their workplaces about the role of police, the role of security, and also about the anti-fascist library network. Like maybe that's a place where people can help, like, I don't know, build those skills or, or develop like understandings of this. So do you want to talk more about the organizing that you're doing as a group and yeah. what you're doing, how people might get involved?
2: I actually want to talk up like a network of different library organizations, um, that are sort of working. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlap in them. Um, so the anti-fascist library network is basically, you know, a space for anyone who has anti-fascist values and believes that the information field can contribute to broader anti-fascist practice. Um, then there is, um, Crit lib or critical librarianship, um, and those are like conversations on um, Twitter and sometimes in real life, though not during a pandemic, um, that have to do with you know approaching librarianship in a critical way. Um, I, I led a Critlib discussion on um, you know safety outside of police um, and policing in libraries a while back, um, and so that was a useful place to start those conversations with people who maybe hadn't had them before. Um, there is um, the Library Defense Network, um, and they um, mobilize communities um, to, you know, protect um, libraries from closures and people from layoffs, um, and that's really important, and they do a lot of work that involves library workers organizing with their communities, um, and, you know, so reaching out to local activist orgs and, like, getting community support um, and, you know, sort of the solidarity between workers and you know, in the library and workers outside the library. Um, And then there is the Library Freedom Project, and they've been on it. There was um, that Medium article they wrote that was shared all around talking about the need to divest from police. And um, so, you know, they've been having talks on um, ways to divest from police. And informally, they're sort of tongue-in-cheek calling their new group focused on that as ALA, um, but it's the Abolitionist Library Association, um, which is pretty funny. (laughs) And um, so, you know, those discussions are great. I encourage people to get involved there. Um, There's also uh, LibRev, which started as a um, conference on, you know, radical librarian organizing. um, And so now there's like a online forum for that that prioritizes like labor organizing to improve libraries. And there is some talk of building a national library union, which I think would be really cool because, um, you know, while some librarians are unionized, a lot of our unions overlap with police unions, which, are, which is very problematic. And um, I think that it would be very useful as a step in divesting from police to not have our unions be all mixed up with each other. Um, because I know in my experience, um, the library union for my library is, you know, also for police and, you know, for a bunch of different city workers and, um, and it makes it absolutely impossible to advocate for anything that would go against police interests. Like people will pitch absolutely absolutely, Terrible um, and restrictive and aggressive ideas like, you know, putting in metal detectors and things like that and get tons of support immediately in the union. And it makes it very difficult um, to advocate otherwise. I think it's very important for librarians to have spaces to, you know, discuss strategies and to organize and to unionize that aren't in these, you know, more dangerous spaces where the police are in the room with you while you're trying to discuss it, you know? And so there's a lot of different ways that this, these first steps could happen. And it depends a lot on your library and the anti-fascist library network. We've talked to some folks who are having a specific issue in their library that's drawing the conversations, you know, librarians say, you know, um, like one of their coworkers like called the police on someone and, you know, they're trying to, you know, um, find a way to, like, prevent that from turning into a criminal record for someone, and, you know, they need help, or, um, you know, other times, it's people who are like, oh, this issue, you know, has come up at work, and I'm trying to, like, turn the conversation, and so we troubleshoot, like, how you might do that. Um, Right now, we're doing a sort of, uh, you know, study group, um, discussion on abolition, um, with the Anti-Fascist Library Network, where, um, we're going through, uh, a sort of study guide that goes week by week and has a bunch of abolitionist resources, um, to get everyone, you know, informed and ready to have these discussions in the workplaces. Um, and, you know, we're also taking part in, um, the Abolitionist Library Association and, you know, um, and, figuring out different people's models for starting to divest from police, you know, and whether they can apply at our specific libraries and to, you know, craft strategies based on the specifics of the communities where our libraries are located um, and and how that works. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is working with other abolitionists in your community and, you know, not necessarily... You know, I, I think it's very worthwhile to work with other people who are not necessarily within your workplace because these are community issues. You know, they're not just workplace issues. Um, you know, whether the library has police greatly impacts everyone in that community. Um And the same thing with, you know, issues of libraries reopening and like that impacts everyone in the community and can be a huge health risk for people when it's not done responsibly. I guess one of the things that I try to stress is like whether we want it or not, librarians, you know, in libraries, like we have a lot of power. It's our responsibility to use that in ways that are the least harmful as possible, you know, and to try to leverage that power for goals of greater Community safety.
0: Thanks. That's a great, I think, I feel like that's a really strong sentiment, sort of head towards wrapping up the conversation, if that feels okay.
1: Is there something that we missed or like something that you wish more folks, uh, whether they're like in the profession or like general community members, knew about the way libraries handle issues around security or fascism?
2: I guess I think that the conversation that comes up a lot when you try to start these conversations when you try to start the conversation around fascism in libraries, the conversation that always comes up is the conversation around quote unquote neutrality or intellectual freedom. Um, and that's not by coincidence. Like that's a very intentional fascist goal. Um, something that I saw in Boston all the time is the fascists there would always, you know, rally under this sort of dog whistle of, you know, free speech, um, quote unquote. Um, and You'll notice in these conversations within library spaces that the only time these buzzwords tend to come up is when somebody is defending either a white supremacist or a transmisogynist. Like they almost exclusively come up in these instances. And, you know, it has just become this dog whistle um, within librarianship, especially, which is why it's such a ripe ground for fascist organizing, because there are so many librarians who are fully ready to accept these things anyway, which is very scary, you know, so you have to kind of be ready for these things to come up. And the most useful thing that I have found is not to get sucked into arguments within their own framework. Like you have to be very clear to reject, you know, this framework and deal with material realities. You know, you have to think about a power analysis you have to think about, like, what it actually looks like. not Because they'll always try to drag you into a hypothetical. They'll always try to say, you know, in this hypothetical where, you know, either your group can't get a library space because you've, you know, denied it to here and da-da-da. And, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about material reality, power, our and how these things function, and also to talk about how, you know, fascism and eugenics ideology function. And when you talk about, a lot of librarians will try to, you know, decontextualize historical moments of fascist violence, like, you know, book burning. Um, And they'll try to decontextualize that from the fact that, you know, one of the most notable and historically relevant examples of Nazi book burning is they were specifically burning books about trans people. And, you know, you can't divorce this from the legacy of You know transphobia. You can't divorce these things from the legacy of white supremacy. um, To try to use like this hypothetical, Um, you have to actually talk about power. And the other thing that I think is really important is, um, you know, talk specifically. um, You have to talk specifically and identify what you're talking about because there's a difference between what is right, what is legal, and what is possible. Those are all different conversations, and people will try to conflate them and try to limit, you know, the conversation to just legality. <laughs> and it, it's a limiting conversation and it inevitably will try, you know, because we do have this white supremacist criminal justice system that comes back into like how the police are involved. If you're talking about, you know, only what is legal and you're relying on this, you know, white supremacist like criminal justice system um, for legitimacy you've completely abandoned, you know, your values of talking about, like, what is actually right, and you've abandoned your imagination of, like, how to change things for the better, you know, you're eliminating the even possibility of change, um, of what, you know, considering what is possible, and organizing what is possible, and so I think that, you know, in preparing to have these conversations, especially, you know, in library spaces, um, those things are important to
0: to be prepared with.
2: And, you know, as far as conversations about divesting from police, I find that a a very good way to start, especially with people who might have a knee-jerk negative reaction, if you talk directly about divesting from police or abolishing police, um, is instead of talking about police at all, start talking about other options to deal with common reasons that people are calling police and creating new default reactions for those things and it can be really simple stuff you know it can be as simple as talking through with someone like I've had conversations where someone is like people shouldn't sleep in the library and I'm like okay why and they're like well you know it could be for you know their health like what if they are having you know like an overdose or something and they're not safe and I'm like okay so you know maybe the solution to that is to check on them and see if they're doing all right. And if they are, you can let them sleep. And otherwise, you know, maybe we can get Narcan training, you know, so we can respond to these things, you know, because if you're talking about a health issue, we got to respond with healthcare and, you know, just sort of like talking them through the process of their connections, I find is really useful, rather than just being like, oh, this one tool that you know how to use, you can't use it, which makes people panic. Instead, offer them other tools. And I I find conversations are much more constructive that way and you get more progress. And it might be more gradual, but it's a way that I've found to approach these conversations with people.
0: Thanks so much. Yeah, I think that's a great tip to leave people with. Thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to find out more about your work, What's your Twitter handle or where should they go look for you? (laughs) um,
2: So my Twitter handle is very easy. It's just my name, Lena Gluck. And also, I definitely encourage anyone who is listening to this and wanting to contribute to any of these conversations to join the Anti-Fascist Library Network. Um, We're open to any anti-fascist library worker or archivist or museum worker or library student or anyone involved in information science in general you know with anti fascist values there's a application that i can give to anybody so feel free to like dm me or tag me on twitter and i'll send it over and you can join but we're always you know glad for new people and new energy and the more the merrier
1: <laughs> awesome yeah. thanks yeah thank you,
0: thank so, you much. so much for having me oh it was a pleasure
1: We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod, that's organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com and our website is OrganizingIdeasPod.wordpress.com where you can find links to things that we've mentioned as well as transcripts to the episodes.